Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. Hada! Your Grace! I know that you want to listen to Binge Mode, but Binge Mode has adult content and... Good. You should head to bed. I'm not tired! And now, Binge Mode. This is the truth. Littlefinger is one of the most dangerous men in Westeros. If Robb Stark falls, Sansa Stark is the key to the North. And if Littlefinger marries her, he'll have the key in his pocket. Which seems such a shame. Why should a man with such a low reputation steal away such a lovely bride? You must despise him. You're working so hard to undermine him. Actually, I rather enjoy him. But he would see this country burn if he could be King of the Ashes. Hello, and welcome to Binge Mode. Yeah! Uh, <laughs> I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com, and joining me today, now that he's tracked down his mm. sworn nemesis and sealed him in a crate, it's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason right. Concepcion. Gotta check the tracking number on my sorcerer. Is the GPS embedded into yeah. his, like, mouth stitching? Yeah, yeah. All right, Jason, we are chasing that symbolic revenge around here. Yes. We are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. We're deep diving one episode at a time. Spoiler warning for all of you. We will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this season and beyond. So throw your foes' parts into the brassiere. What's that smell? Watch that flame turn blue. Mm. Listen for that special voice. Because it is time to break down season three, episode four. And now his watch is ended. Jason. Yes. You know, I find that uh, influence is largely a matter of patience. Yeah. So before we plow ahead, let's let's pause mm. for a second here and okay. let's let's refresh ourselves on what actually happened in this episode. So let's much. take a quick trip down our very own King's Road. On the road to Heron Hall, Jamie is in very bad shape. His rotting hand is tied around his neck. The stump of his former hand is probably infected. Pretty gross. Uh, Jamie is depressed over the mutilation of his hand, the loss of identity. Brienne schools him on the everyday suffering of the realm's common people and kind of insults him into getting his back up. A lot happening in King's Landing. A lot happening in King's Landing. Tyrion visits Varys. Always love a scene between these two. (laughs) And what does he find? He finds that the Master of Whispers has just received a very special delivery Amazon Prime all the way to the Red Keep. It's the sorcerer who cut Varys and he's alive-ish alive. in a box, just hanging out in that crate. And Varys finally tells Tyrion and us the story of his mutilation and his ensuing rise to prominence from a brutalized boy in Mir to the small council. Varys, big Varys episode. He has a couple other notable encounters as well. The other one comes with Roz, who tells him of the growing 
And we do mean growing, not it's growing, showing. Growing strong. <laughs> Legend of Sex God Pod. And uh, they also talk about some slightly more important business regarding Littlefinger's possible intention to uh, include Sansa in his jaunt up to the Eyrie, feather bed and all. Yep. And then Varys also meets with Lady Olena. They sort of dance around each other. A lot of verbal sparring here. It's great to watch equals exchange words. And they end up talking about Sansa. What to do with her? Where does she belong? Is there a way to help her while helping themselves? And ultimately, they strike a bargain, which we'll come to find out more about in time. Joffrey and Cersei, meanwhile, take Marjorie and Elena on a little tour of the Sept of Baylor. Guys, it's wedding season. You gotta scout the venues. These are the bones of Arian Brightflame. Is this cake tasting urgent business? Is it urgent business? And Marjorie, it's another great Marjorie scene. She convinces Joffrey to, you know, after they enjoy some violent Targaryen story time together, to drink in the love of the people. You know, step outside, wave. How hard can it be? Cersei, horrified by this and by many things she's witnessing, visits Tywin, who, you know, as he's wanted to do, write in a letter. They discuss the hunt for Jaime. The threat that the Tyrells may or may not pose, Joffrey's recklessness, and Cersei's worth as a daughter, a woman, and a a ruler. In the North, Bran's raven dreams continue. In them, he can run and climb and shoot arrows as he once did. Ramsay, meanwhile, over by the Dreadfort or thereabouts, is play-acting still as the rescuer of Theon. He's leading Theon through the woods, and, and Theon is just spilling his biography to this total freaking stranger. He tells Ramsay about why Such he sacked, an idiot. Why he sacked Winterfell, how he felt about being raised by the Starks. What a mistake he made. Ned Stark was my, my real dad, he says. Uh, and he tells them about the famed farmer's boys, that those weren't really the Stark children that were burned and killed there. Ramsay pretends to lead Theon to Deepwood Mott, where Yara, his sister, holds sway. But actually, no, it's the Dreadfort. Theon's torture will continue! Boy, will it. In the Riverlands, the Brotherhood without banners taking their charges to their hideout. A, a little a little cave under a waterfall. Sad for, for book readers not to get the ghost of High Heart anywhere in here, but what can yep. you do? What can you do? The Brotherhood reveals a little bit about its sort of its its beliefs, its motivations, yeah. its intentions, its its decree followers of R'hllor, the Lord of Light, and with good reason, as we will come to find out. Beric Dondarrion, the Lightning Lord, who you guys may or may not remember seeing briefly in the throne room in season one when Ned sent him out on a mission to hunt down the mountain, sentences the Hound to trial by combat. In Astapor, Danny purchases her Unsullied for from Crazy Kraz for the Crazy price of- Crazy Low, 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 low price of one dragon. Uh, once she has the whip in her hand, the symbol that all unsullied slave soldiers must obey, she fluent in Valerian, much to Kraz's surprise, turns the unsullied loose on the masters and orders Drogon to flambe Kraz. After the massacre, Danny offers her new army the choice of serving her or leaving as freedmen. And up at Craster's. Talk about a crazy guy, that Craster. <laughs> I'm a godly man. The Lord Commander is trying to keep the Brothers of the Night's Watch busy with, you know, menial tasks. Shoveling some shit, shoveling some snow, a lot of shoveling. But mutinous discontent is brewing. Rast, in particular, is complaining bitterly that asshole Carl will join the chorus soon. Sam, visiting Gilly, visiting the babe. Gilly begging Sam for help. 
These two are not quite yet on the same page. The Lord Commander will later in the episode preside over a brother's funeral, Bannon, who apparently smells delicious as he's baking on a funeral pyre. These guys are really hungry. The mutinous talk continues to grow to a low roar. And when Craster basically says, you know, I think it's time for you guys to get to step in. Kill your wounded or I'll do it it for you. It's a mercy. Lastra. Mutiny breaks out. Craster is killed. Mormont is killed as well. R.I.P. to Jorah's dad. Sam, taking advantage of the moment, goes in, swoops up Gilly and the babe, flees into the haunted forest. Just one note for Sam. Find ghost. Take ghost. Maybe take the direwolf. Just a little suggestion. You better run, pity. I'll be cutting your throats one of these nights. Wow. He said that in a really, Rast said that in a really, really, really evil, but also very heavy metal way. You just, you looked really happy when you were saying that. That was Rast's shining moment. It was. Yeah. It was. A, a brief bright spot in a bleak existence. Jason, one of the bummers about life in the Night's Watch is that- So many. You know, they never mention the shoveling or the shit. A lot of shoveling of a shit. A lot of shoveling. But breaking through the muck- trying to find a way to move the objects that are in your path. This is an essential part of life in the land of ice and fire. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut to the core of it. Let's stick it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is freelancing. Everywhere you look in And Now His Watch Has Ended, characters are breaking with convention. They're violating some sort of societal or social norm of the land to get what they want or what they need. And we see a lot of symmetry, including with Locke and Ramsey. Uh, Locke and Ramsey, you know, the, the, the concept of freelancing, it's kind of like you're improvising. And as the structure of the world, as the, the uh, traditional order of things is kind of breaking down and crumbling, people are just left on their own devices. They're going to do their own thing. It's easy to focus on the shock of what happens to Jamie and kind of view it from his perspective of a person whose hand just got cut off. But it it's uncommon for a person in Locke's position to do what he just did. And it, it speaks to the chaos that's kind of like enveloping the realm. His orders were to find the Kingslayer, a phenomenally valuable captive, not to mutilate him. Uh, this is... A transgression. I mean, this is something that he would ostensibly be punished for by his Bolton masters. But at the same time, it's something that he feels completely free to do. He, he, there's no fear at all in what he's done. He does not view this as a transgression. He's actively torturing Jamie when the when the the episode begins, feeding him piss. (laughs) (laughs) Brutal. I mean, he's tied. His rotting hand around, you know, around Jamie's own neck. He's got to smell. The books are, are so vivid. It was so vivid <laughs> in this regard about the <laughs> the rot, the smell of the rotting hand wafting up into Jamie's. There's nostrils. no element of regret. There's no element yeah. of, of thinking I have I have erred here and I have overstepped. It's, Absolutely, I acted on my own accord. I have the ability here to read the room and make a decision. Right. And not only that, but I'm going to step on his other hand right. and tell him that if he does it again, I'll take that hand. It, it really shows you that about, you know, this is the realm is in chaos. The traditional order is breaking down. Um, and Ramsey is doing the exact same thing. You know, right. this is the one, this is the only son of, of Balon Greyjoy. Yes. The Northerners 
uh, if any other Northern house got Theon, there's a chance that he might be executed, but, no, but nothing like what Ramsay is doing. Um, and he's doing it pretty much openly. Unlike Locke, though, Ramsay is actually getting useful intel. And this is, by the way, this is interesting about Ramsay. You know, for all the torturing he does, he gets his best information when he's not torturing. Mm -hmm. He just does the torturing because he likes Loves it. Loves it. Loves <laughs> yeah, it. Like, he, but he's quite adept at getting information uh, with honey, so to speak. Um, and what does he discover? He discovers that Bran and Rickon are alive. This is huge, huge information. And he gets Theon to admit that, oh man, I made a mistake with this whole sacking Winterfell thing. Cause my real no, father. My real father lost his head at King's Landing. I made a choice and I chose wrong. <laughs> Put him back in the foot screws. It's interesting to watch the slightly more refined yeah. actors also attempt to freelance <laughs> in King's Landing, yeah. right? Because there is less overt savagery, right. but still a lot of shirking of convention, yep. of disregarding or at least skirting norms. We see a lot of that in this episode with Varys, with all three of the interactions yep. he has. The first one comes with Varys and Tyrion. You know, Tyrion actually wants to freelance a little bit too, right? He seeks out Varys in the first place and he says, I hoped we might speak in confidence. Right. There's literally no such thing. Right. There's just no such thing. So by even attempting to foster that kind of like cone of silence and circle of trust, Tyrion is acting a little unconventionally and he's asking Varys to act unconventionally. But he wants to freelance because he knows that operating through traditional channels that he's not going to get the clarity that he seeks, which is who tried to kill me right. on the battlefield, right? He, right. he needs closure. And, and this is when, when Varys has his, his line about symbolic revenge. Tyrion has that great, I'd like actual right. revenge against the <laughs> actual people right. who tried to kill me, which is reasonable. But, you know, what does Varys reveal? It's telling how he chooses to respond to this request from Tyrion. He reveals that his whole life, mm -hmm. in essence, since his mutilation, has been about freelancing, has been about adjusting to the circumstances and the requirements of the moment. This mentality is what has allowed him not only to stay alive, but to continue to thrive and advance. He says, you know, and, and soon learned, this is after his mutilation, and soon learned the contents of a man's letters are more valuable than the contents yes. of his purse. Step by step, I made my way from the slums of Mir to the small council chamber. Influence grows like a weed. I tended mine patiently until mine reached from the Red Keep all the way to the far side of the world. This is him explaining how he found the sorcerer who cut him. And, you know, he's not saying this just because it's sharing time, he's attempting to counsel Tyrion. He's basically giving him advice that boils down to be patient, be prepared to adjust to the circumstances of a given moment. You know, he says, influence is largely a matter of patience, I find. And then later he adds, I have no doubt the revenge you want will be yours in time if you have the stomach for it, if you're willing to do what's necessary, if you're not always bound by the norms. This upending of the traditional order and really the fantastic events of like the last several months to a year in Westeros, the beheading of Ned Stark, the death of the king, uh, an all-out civil war has led to new alliances, new enemies, and with those new alliances, new enemies come 
essentially a new game board to kind of analyze. And that's what Varys and Olena and Roz are doing right. as they're cast into this this new paradigm. You know, Varys goes to visit Olena and he says, I choose my allies rather carefully and my enemies more carefully. Still, this is probably not something that Varys has had to do for, what, a decade? You know, the, the realm has been rather static. Right. You know, things have happened but the king was the king for a number of years. There was no civil war. There was no need to, to do this stuff. And he's the reason that Varys goes to Elena is because the game board is just a jumble. He's there to, to find out about Sansa. What's going on with Sansa? Why is Littlefinger interested in her? It's rather obvious. Should Rob die in the field, Sansa becomes extremely important. Varys knows this. He says to her, Littlefinger was born with no lands, no wealth, no armies. He has acquired the first two. How long before he has the army? Perhaps you'll laugh, but I know him better than most, and this is the truth. Littlefinger is one of the most dangerous men in Westeros. If Rob Stark falls, Sansa Stark is the key to the north. This is very true. This is the same thing the Tyrells want this too. The Lannisters want this too. There's no quicker way to sew up the realm than to immediately take control of two regions. And the reason that Varys is doing this is against the norms too. He wants to help Sansa, even though she's not in a position of power at the moment. Aligning with the weakened is not something that you often see in Westeros. What are the motivations that lead people to act this way? It's the instinct to help Sansa is in theory pure. I couldn't help her father. Let me try here. But it actually, it's all fear. It's let's protect against this other thing and this advancement in this other area. You're trying to always move your your own pieces forward while taking your enemies off the board. It's always that dance. And one of the people who thinks she's good at dancing but is constantly tripping over the hem of her skirts, Cersei. Yes. And we see her engage in a few conversations this episode in which she is outmatched. She's a great speed chess player, but she's not in it for the long game. Right. It's a little painful in these early seasons. It's fascinating now. You really see how yeah. far she's come, how how sincerely she's advanced. But watching her try to go toe-to-toe with Elena and her father in this episode, wow. So she's with Elena. They're at the Sept. And they have a pretty poignant mm-hmm. exchange. Elena says, they're talking about their sons, Joffrey lunatic mace (laughs) Olena's favorite punching bag and what does Olena say she says we mothers do what we can to keep our sons out of the grave but they do seem to yearn for it we shower them with good sense and it slides right off like rain in the wind and Cersei says and yet the world belongs to them Olena a ridiculous arrangement in my mind now when watching this again now that we've seen the entire series you can't help but think about the prophecy yeah. you see you can just see it playing across Cersei's mind as she's hearing this but you know it's also just actually really refreshing to hear a character like Olena speak this way and basically just just out in the open reject norms reject expectations and say basically Things should be different than right. they are. This is stupid. The The expected routine order is dumb. We could do better. Let's try. Now, Cersei can't give Olena the satisfaction in that moment of agreeing with her. They're opposed, right? They're enemies in Cersei's mind. So yeah. she can't say, wow, that's exactly how I feel. Let me... Let me get in on this. Yeah. She has to act like she's offended or, or wounded in some way and then go... And take that to Tywin because that exchange with Elena is clearly resonant. It's clearly on Cersei's mind when she meets with her father later. He's writing a letter. Yeah. Of course. Scribbling. The sound of, of scribbling. Is. 
she's there under basically the pretense of checking in on the search for Jamie, right? And also of complaining about the Tyrells, you know, Marjorie's whole, if you give them your love, they will return to the thousandfold moment in the sept earlier with Joffrey getting him to go out and wave to the the common people, right. expose himself to the threat of harm. Right. Clearly did not sit well with Cersei. She's right. disturbed she, she by sees this. this. She sees this uh, as some kind of underhanded tactic. She <laughs> is so threatened right. by Marjorie and Marjorie's control, ability to control Joffrey. And of course, Tywin says like, Wow, wouldn't it be nice if if you could control Joffrey? But why is she really there? What is her actual agenda? She's there to ask Tywin essentially to break with norms and to give her, his daughter, more faith, more trust, more responsibility, more agency than not only than he has given her to this point, but then he gives to his sons. You know, she says, did it ever occur to you that I might be the one who deserves your confidence and your trust? Not your sons, not Jamie or Tyrion, but me. Years and years of lectures on family and legacy. The same lecture, really. Yeah, she says that. She says it, too. Spits it at legacy. Really, really kind of putting everyone on blast here, including the show, for sort of returning to these legacy speeches time and time again. But boy, are they good. They're really great. And Tywin's like, all right, contribute. Let's hear it. Right. What do you got? What do you got? (laughs) And he says, I don't mistrust you because you're a woman. I mistrust you because you're not as smart as you think you are. You've allowed that boy to ride roughshod over you and everyone else in the city. Perhaps you should try stopping him from what he likes. That's Cersei's response. Perhaps you should try stopping him from doing what he likes. And Tywin says, I will. I will. (laughs) It's a threat, but it's also a promise. It's a promise that I will control the king. I don't care about what he wants. Or the idea that because he's the king, what he wants yep. matters. I'm going to take control. Up at Craster's Keep, order has broken down. The dominance of the Lord Commander over his men is gone. They no longer respect him. They question his judgment into leading them into uh, basically a suicidal situation at the Fist of the First Men. Um, his plan to attack tens of thousands of wildlings with a force of 300 has all led them to this place where there is a mutiny and the Lord Commander is killed. This, by the way, would be, this is like a historic moment in the history of the Night's Watch. This would be something that people, you know, 200, 300, 400, 500 years from now, they would, they'll talk about G.R. Mormont as the one who was killed by his men. Not the fate he deserves, by the way. Not at all. That's some uh, fucked up sh- shit. He should have read the room a little better, but not at all. Rast talking to Gren and Ed, he sums it up perfectly. You know, when the walkers come, Crass will serve us up like so many pigs. If we want to live, we have to look out for ourselves. He's not, the thing about Rast is he's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, Garbage human. But the the leap that he goes, the, the leap in logic is not that irrational. You know, Craster would do that to them. And what unfolds here is a good reminder that not every norm-shattering move stems from Carol plotting or deception, you know, moves within moves. Sometimes it's just the will to survive, just that basic instinct of, I want to keep going. You know, Rass says, it wasn't his foot that killed him, that bastard Craster starved him to death. They believe that he has food laid by. And and in his, and, in his comments, uh, Craster kind of sounds like that like when they question him on it he says you know how i've got to feed my women right so they say oh well, how would you do that right so you do have food the secret hidden. stores you do have food hidden you know craster himself is a symbol of breakdown of the traditional natural order he's he's given up on the human race essentially throwing his lot with who the white walkers he says he has 99 sons where are they they're currently white walkers and when he talks about the wounded 
cut their throats and be done with it. That's when Carl starts up with, you know, I'd rather eat what you've got hidden away and boom. By the yeah, where is Ghost, by the way? Out hunting, I guess, is the I thing mean, they always he, say. There's that moment early in the season when Sam sort of sees him in the distance right. and says, Ghost. And then that's it. And Ghost is like, no. Nah, because, you know, budget. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. Just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to binge mode. This episode also features an entire band of brothers built on the idea of freelancing, unlike the Night's Watch, who is really going off book here with the mutiny. The Brotherhood Without Banners, they're supposed to break away from traditional alliances and tactics and seek their own form of justice. That's kind of the point. So the little girl might be the bravest one here, but let's all do our best to find our courage, because it is time to assemble the Conclave, head to the Citadel, and learn everything we need to know about the Brotherhood Without Banners. Um, the Brotherhood Without Banners. They're, you think about them as Westeros' version of Robin Hood and the Merry Men. Mm-hmm. Outlaw bands have stalked the woods and hill country of Westeros, probably for as long as human beings have lived on the continent. One person's law is another person's despotism, um, particularly in a feudal society such as Westeros, where the only law is the king's law, whether that be the various petty kings that ruled the land before the Targaryens or the King King. Um, so, you know, this is this is not an uncommon thing in Westeros. People taking up um, to the woods and raiding, stealing shit. The difference here with the Brotherhood Without Banners is they're an expressly political outfit, I guess you would say. They're, they're, they're interested in justice, not just looting. You know, two decades before the events of the show, there was the Kingswood Brotherhood, a notorious outfit of highwaymen led by Simon Toyne. They kidnapped royal ra- travelers for ransom and they stalked the Kingswood, which is just south of King's Landing. It, it took a basically a special ops mission ordered by Ares involving Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, um, and Sir Barristan and a young Jamie Lannister, a young, fresh squire Jamie Lannister to put the Kingswood brothers out of business. They enjoyed wide support among the common people, but they were essentially just thieves. You know, they just stole stuff and, and kidnapped people. The Hill Tribes are kind of a similar thing. The Hill Tribes of the Vale. The Hill Tribes were, uh, you know, they got their start as kind of the remnants of these kingdoms of the first men who were displaced during the Andal invasion. And they fled up into the hills and the and the mountains and the and the forests of the of slopes of the mountain ranges there where it was just hard to get at them and they and they've been carrying out an insurgency essentially ever since and then there have been various points throughout the years where they've threatened the order of the vale but basically they're just like low level robbers and outlaws right now so the brotherhood without banners interesting origin story here the seed that became the brotherhood was planted during ned stark's very, 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 very brief reign as protector of the realm. You might remember this as coinciding with King Bobby B's hunting excursion. <laughs> Bobby B. King Bobby B. <laughs> you know that ill-fated hunting trip he took um, to go get pigs and deer and whatever he, else he might find out there? It was during this hunting trip when Ned Stark has hand orders Lord Beric Dondarrion of Blackhaven, which is in the southern Stormlands, to... 
take a force into the Riverlands, bring the mountain to justice. Beric agrees to do so as a different actor in season one. (laughs) That Uh, homie got recast in a hurry. Rare good Ned speech. So Beric rides off with Thoros of Mir and a group of men, which include a number of Ned's household guard. Ned Stark always thinking ahead, always giving other people his armed men when he needs them. Um, they ride off and promptly are ambushed by Lannister forces in what would come to be known as the Battle of the Mummer's Ford. Beric reportedly slain in the fighting. Who knows if that's true? What's up with that? That's weird. By the time Rob Stark has appeared on the scene and has taken his fight into the Riverlands and the Westerlands, there are reports of this group, the Brotherhood Without Banners, and they're raiding Lannister supply lines. Turns out that Beric is alive. He's been leading this group and is there's an outlaw band now, and they have enjoyed the support of the people. And this is important because... The Lannister supply lines early on in the war were just all over the place. You know, the, the, the Lannisters are, you can either bring in supplies from the Westerlands through a, a very small number of passes, including the Golden Tooth, or you have to bring them over from King's Landing. These stretched supply lines are vulnerable. And that's what the Brotherhood Without Banners are attacking. So when we catch up with them, um, we already know that the Lannisters have been specifically looking for them. They've been ordered to... to to look for them. And part of the torture of the, of the small folk and the various prisoners is just to find out, like, where are these guys? These guys right. are incredibly annoying and incredibly effective. And it's not a surprise why, because, um, first of all, their original mission was to bring them out into justice. They involve, like, an unknown number of their group is Stark men. Uh-huh. So we shouldn't be surprised by this. This is, and we'll find out more about their particular religion and their adherence to this religion quite soon. Or light. Interesting. Wonder what Melisandre would think of these yeah. folks. All right. Maester, Bran has to go after the Three-Eyed Raven and we have to go to the Sept. You, just, you have to do what you have to do. It is time to bathe in the light of the Seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. Lightning round style. You go first. What's number one? Uh, Varys finally telling the story of his... Uh barbecuing of his parts. <laughs> he says of the sorcerer, he burned my parts in a brazier. The flames turned blue and I heard a voice answer his call. I still dream of that night. Not of the sorcerer, not of his blade. I dream of the voice from the flames. Was it a god, a demon, a conjurer's trick? I don't know, but the sorcerer called and a voice answered and ever since that day I've hated magic and all those who have practiced it. I understand why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very insightful glimpse into Varys's motivations in his of, character. A lot of uh, lot of cutting off of cocks and yep, using them a, for magic purposes. That's a thing on this show. All right, number two. The whole exchange between Brienne and Jamie is electric and exceptional. This yeah. is the moment, not only where we've really, where we've already sort of started to soften up to Jamie. We do it more here, but this is where we start to love Brienne, I think. You know, he's he's consumed some some horse urine earlier. Very unfortunate, but, you know, <laughs> if the contestants on the challenge can do it, so can Jamie. Shake it off. And then he's kind of refused. He's sulking later. He wants to die. He's giving yep. up. He won't eat his dinner. And Brienne says, eat. What are you doing? He says, I'm dying. You can't die. You need to live to take revenge. I don't care about revenge. And what does she say? She doesn't feel bad for him. She doesn't right. take pity or try to comfort him. You coward a little misfortune and you're giving up and he chokes out the word misfortune yeah 
You lost your hand. My sword hand. I was that hand. And then she says, you have a taste, one taste of the real world where people have important things taken from them. And you whine and cry and quit. You sound like a bloody woman. Boom. Now, that last part, whatever. Let's not let's not go there. But where people have important things taken from them every day, you get one real taste of the real world. This is an important thing for Jamie to hear. This is a bit of a turning point for him, not only in how we as viewers or readers think about him, but in how he thinks about the world. These words actually resonate. Number three. Oh, Gilly. She's talking to Sam after she's trying to quiet her child who will very soon be given to the White Walker. She says, I don't want your stupid thimble. I want you to save my baby's life. Can you do that? Can you? I don't have time for you. I don't have time for anyone but him, and he doesn't have much time. Just great stuff by Gilly. All right, number four. Uh, Speaking of pot, this exchange between Varys and Roz, one of the things that makes Game of Thrones great is that the showrunners know the little moments that the yeah. audience is going to respond to, right? Yeah. They know that everyone's going to be talking about Pod after his exploits in the prior part of the season. And so when Varys is visiting Roz, naturally, yeah. this is what they would be talking about, right? Word has traveled. Is he very large? No larger than most men, apparently. And yet they said he was... Extraordinary. The most extraordinary man they've ever had. Lady Olena. Mother Pop- of the year. Mother of the year. Mace Tyrell, that singing, eating guy. Dressed in silks. Uh, she says, All he laid siege to was the banquet table in the command tent. Harsh. It's harsh. Meanwhile, Stannis and those guys inside Storm's End just starving. And there's a banquet table outside. Mace Tyrell was Woof. extremely, could not wait to get to Storm. Lay siege, Storm's End. We're going to take it. No. Number six. Marjorie. Yeah. Nice little moment here. She and Joffrey are, are, you know, Joffrey's actually like genuinely at the point of sexual ecstasy describing vicious, brutal bits of Targaryen death history. (laughs) Marjorie's playing along, playing the game as as she does so well. And she says... It's like taking a walk through history. And I actually really like that moment, as gross as that scene is, because it is like that. And the show does this really well. We get these little digests, these little historical digests. But it made me wonder, like, if you could walk through one structure in this world and and just soak up that history, what would you pick? And and you have to assume everything is standing still. Like, Cersei hasn't gotten into any of that wildfire yet. There's so much. I think I'd... I want to say the wall, but then again, like the wall is not that. It, I guess is it. Does the Isle of Faces count as a structure? Yeah, sure, you can pick that. I want to pick the Isle of Faces just because nobody's supposed to be out there, and it's a lot of weirwoods, and there might be children of the forest out there, and that's kind of my vibe. Wow, spooky. Children, I want to chill with like children of the forest and just like relax under the trees. That sounds beautiful. That's I'll go it? to the wall if you're not going. Okay, you go. Yeah, it's too cold there for me. All right, number seven, Olena. To her granddaughter, another golden rose. How original. I have a golden rose painted on my chamber pot, as if that makes it smell any better. And then she proceeds to roast, roast the words of House Tyrell, growing strong, the dullest words of any house. Man. Winter is coming. Strong. (laughs) (laughs) We do not sow. Doing her best, Robert. Strong. 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 Yeah. Love it. She's, She's an icon. What a legend. All right. As Marjorie just taught us, sometimes severity is the price we pay 
for greatness. Yes. Joffrey agrees, guys. So you know, yes. you know it's true. Each episode, we are honoring the person who played the game, who advanced his or her cause in some tangible way. And this week, really only one choice. This was a, this was a runaway. The winner of our champion's purse took some severe action of her own. It is... Daenerys Stormborn. I wish I could say it in Valerian. <laughs> I don't. I can't. Beautiful speak. language. Yeah. Beautiful sorry, language. I can't speak Valerian. Yeah. it's one of the romance languages it really of Essos. Right. Yeah. The moment after she confirms that the transaction right. is complete, right? It's done. I'm holding the whip. It is, is done. It? She holds the right. whip, and she speaks. She yeah. speaks in High Valerian. Instantly, instantly in that moment, everyone knows that she has duped them. She so has good. won. She says, a dragon is not a slave, right? Because Kraz is like, oh, you won't, you won't do what I want. She's yeah. like, a dragon is not a slave. Great line. And then what does he say? Oh, my God. Yeah. You speak Valerian? Yeah. And she says, I am. Daenerys Stormborn. Titles, titles, titles. Titles, titles, titles. <laughs> you know the damn word. I missed you, Robert. Valerian is my mother tongue, right. right? And she orders. She orders the Unsullied. This is, a, by the way, like a grave misstep. This is not a difficult information to, to think, like, oh, the Targaryens, they're Valerian. Do you think they speak it? Right. Ah. Also, maybe, like, notice that her eyebrow is arching every time you call her a whore <laughs> or know. say that Jorah smells like piss. <laughs> like, context clues, guys. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. yeah. But... She pulls it off somehow, and she orders the Unsullied to slay every master, every man with a whip, right? So Take them out. And then there's the beautiful moment. She says, she issues her command. She's already issued the command to the Unsullied. Now she issues her command to Drogon, Dracarys. And he burns crazy so Kraz to a crisp. But that's not even really the master stroke. What is the master stroke? It is choice. That's right. She shows her she shows her character here. She gives the unsullied the choice. They can follow her willfully as their queen, act as her army, the core of her new army, or they can go free. They can live a life. You can you can walk away right now. You've been slaves all your life, she says. Today you are free. Any man who wishes to leave may leave and no harm will come to him. I give you my word. Will you fight for me as free men? And then the sports movie moment. Pounding the that pounding, pounding the spears. The, <laughs> pounding the spears. Jordan Barriston share that look of oh yeah we picked we picked right she's a leader that's it's, this is good we did it it's yeah. really a beautiful moment it's like they're recognizing what we're recognizing which is yeah. she is not just a queen but she is a conqueror right. we're all buying in fully at this point little do we know that we'll be spending the next 18 years in marine all right guys now our watch has ended we hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing Season 3, Episode 5, Kissed by Fire. That one's going to have an NC-17 rating. Woo! Get ready! Sex key. Until then, here's something for you to ponder. What happens when the non-existent bumps against the decrepit? <laughs> Dovagades, Axio Ocentados, Menti Ocentados, Kilopilos Luvale Tolve Ocentados, Iniriador Adricatos, Urra Luero Bozetado Tolvia Belva Pridas. Incredible. <laughs>